Gazette Newspapers presents the Parting Shots Podcast. Now, here's your host, Daily Gazette Associate Sports Editor, Ken Schott. Thank you, Scott Keezy, and welcome to the Parting Shots Podcast. Available wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe today. Thanks for joining me from the Parting Shots Podcast Studio in Schenectady, New York. We have a great show for you. Our friend Tim Healy, who covers the New York Mets for Newsday, drops by to talk about the recent free agent signings the team made. First up, let's talk the College of St. Rose women's soccer. The Golden Knights are back in the NCAA Division II Tournament Final Four after a dramatic 3-2 overtime victory over Concord last Saturday in the quarterfinals. St. Rose faces Dallas Baptist at 4 p.m. Thursday in Colorado Springs, Colorado. On Tuesday, I spoke with the Golden Knights head coach, Lori Darling-Guthile. Well, Lori, thank you for joining uh, me on the podcast. I know it's uh, you guys are busy getting ready for the game on Thursday. I mean, how excited are you guys? Well, I think the team is really excited to be here. I think they are very motivated, and they also are very tuned in on doing everything they possibly can so that we can advance to Saturday's game. Yeah, and I was on the Zoom call on Saturday after the uh, dramatic three-two overtime winning against Concord. And this, you guys seem to be very resilient in that game. Down one nothing, down two one. Each time you came back to win that game, what does that say about this team? Well, I think that they have a tremendous internal drive and a commitment to achieve their goals, and they are relentless in pursuit of that. They are not going to stop or you know, mentally break, they are going to continue to persevere and ensure that they are going to come out with the result that they have been working for. Uh, yeah, obviously coming back last year, not not playing a season with the COVID, you know, how, how was, tough was it to get back on track this season after losing last year? Well, I think we actually used last season to be very beneficial. We used every single opportunity we had to grow our incoming players, to build our team, to develop them as best we could within the constraints that we had to function under for COVID protocol. And the girls had a tremendous amount of, I think, additional desire and energy because they missed soccer so dearly. And so they didn't take the opportunity to compete and the opportunity to be their best and to play for granted. You know, it was taken from them and it made a lot of them realize just how important it was to um, their happiness. And it made it very clear, like how central it was to their life and what was important to them. So we had players who were in their fifth year of eligibility who made tremendous sacrifices and worked very hard in order to enter grad programs and put themselves in a position so that they could return for their last season of eligibility. That wasn't taken lightly, and we were determined that that additional effort, that additional opportunity um, was going to be fully capitalized on. You know, you talk about you know some of those players. I Me, mean, obviously, a lot of those you know, players were in the 2019 uh, Final Four. Uh, how much does that experience will help help you out uh, this time around? Well, I think anytime you've had players that have gone to the national championships, 
they understand how amazing it is and they understand why you do all of the work correctly during the regular season and why every single game matters during the regular season and all of the discipline, all the sacrifice off the field, why it's, it's worth it and why it's also necessary, right, to make sure that you create that opportunity for postseason, you know, NCAA tournament play. Um, and then obviously I think for our girls, you know, getting there and experiencing a very tight game and knowing that, you know, had we had another 10 minutes with Grand Valley, we would have been in a position to really um, perhaps tie that game up because we had them breaking and we just ran out of time. It, it's going to give our current players just extra motivation to advance this time. They want to advance so badly. Yeah. They know what it felt like to come out short and how painful that was and how close they were. And so they want to advance and they have that inner desire and drive to do everything they possibly can so that that can be the outcome. And so that's really, you know, I think part of their inner strength, their inner core and the upperclassmen have led and been a great example. So our new players understand and they follow their lead and they've come so far with you know what the NCAA tournament is and our process so far has been great it hasn't been easy um it has been challenging and they've learned through that that if you want something you got to fight for it tooth and nail and that was really demonstrated on Saturday against a very tough opponent and that same internal drive is going to be necessary on Thursday. Yeah, talk about some of your upperclassmen and how much, you know, how you know, they've been key factors in this. Well, Marika is, you know, a phenomenal keeper. She's, if not the best, one of the top two keepers in the country. You know, she's already been, um, given opportunities uh, with people contacting us for professional opportunities in France when she graduates. Um, she's just a very special talent, both in her abilities on the field and her character and leadership and um, her entire mentality off the field. So she obviously is someone who we rely on and she also comes through huge um her saves on saturday in the second half were outstanding and so obviously it starts from her and then sierra lundy who's a senior had probably the best two games she's had playing for us um this past weekend in west virginia the the fight in her uh was unstoppable and there was no way she was gonna not tie that game up uh, with that incredible header and then push us into overtime to get the results. Um, she's been a superb holding center midfielder for us. She shut down every attacking center mid we've faced and done it incredibly well. Uh, she has tremendous grit and endurance and toughness. Um, and then we have uh, a couple other seniors who are just outstanding leaders on and off the field, Teresa Durrell and Louie, um, have both been 
great captains. They demonstrate everything that you need in shaping younger players. And whenever they have opportunities to get on the field, they make the most of them. So we're very, very fortunate with that. And then our center back, uh, Sana Rain, is another outstanding leader. She's really um, worked with freshmen, first-year players around her. Uh, and done an incredible job getting Jada and Riley and Kate and Allie to step up and, as first-year players, be able to handle these moments, handle the talent that they have to shut down and, you know, create the best unit they possibly can create um, defensively. And uh, then we have a lot of, you know, transfers who've come in and done amazing things. Jen Bartlett, who is a a D1 transfer, a local player who went, you know, 13 and 14 was on our women's national system um, for our country, has had a spectacular year, and she was unbelievable this past weekend. So she's just, you know, stepping up and shining in the biggest moments for us, and doing an incredible job in the center of the midfield. And another transfer, Lauren Amarina, who came from a junior college. Um, an English player has just had a phenomenal postseason so far. Um, she was the MVP for the NE10 tournament, and she's been just a great workhorse as well and, and has a lot of special ability and talent to get forward and create goals. She's playing a lot of Mia's headers right in. I mean, she was essential off of Mia's throw-ins for two goals, our two comeback goals on Saturday. Uh, so we're very pleased with those players, Kaylin Britt has been great um, up top. And um, we have Tatiana Legirio, who is a Scotia girl, who has had a very good year um, and is, you know, making a difference. And then we have some very talented um, young strikers. And, and Mia Clammer is just a special, rare exceptional player um who's made a tremendous impact in the attacking third and um has the specialty of her long throw-in on top of all of her incredible athleticism and speed and, and finishing ability and you know soccer sense so that has really changed our attacking uh abilities to be dangerous <laughs> um uh, the long throw-ins, which we've capitalized on, and we're getting you know better and better and better at capitalizing on those. Um, and then we've got a, you know Lexi Gracia, who scored the game winner, who did an amazing job on Saturday. Um, Sam Diaz, uh, who's another striker. So you know we're really utilizing a lot of players um, and using our depth to our advantage whenever we can as well. How important will that depth be being out in Colorado uh, Springs and the uh, altitude? Well, we're doing everything. I mean, I think one of the blessings was we had to go to West Virginia, and we were at half a mile at West Virginia. So my kids have been in a half a mile for the last week, okay. which has helped their bodies acclimate, right? So it wasn't such a jump for us um, flying here. And we're doing everything that, you know, the professional athletes do with electrolytes and incredible amount of sleep and incredible amount of hydration and, you know, super clean food, um, the oxygen um, pieces 
so we're doing everything we can and having the best care of our players that's possible so that they can be their best. And we're able to not even be concerned about that, quite frankly, on Thursday. Well, Lori, appreciate a few minutes. Uh, good luck on Thursday, and uh, hopefully you get bring home a championship back to Albany. Well, thank you. I appreciate the time and the support. Enjoy the rest of your day. Let's talk baseball next. Tim Healy of Newsday discusses the recent free agent signings by the New York Mets, as well as the Major League Baseball lockout. You're listening to the Parting Shots Podcast. Hi, this is Daily Gazette reporter Stanley Hootie. I'd like to wish you a happy holiday season and a great 2022. I've got a math question for you. When you add tolerance, subtract prejudice, and multiply efforts to treat one another with respect, what do you get? Less division. And school sports have it down to a science. Looking for an example of what can happen when we realize there's more that unites us than divides us? Look no further than high school sports in New York. This message presented by the New York State Public High School Athletic Association and the New York State Athletic Administrators Association. Hi, this is Daily Gazette Sports Center Michael Kelly. I would like to wish you a happy holiday season and a great 2022. Welcome back to the podcast. The New York Mets were busy before the lockout happened. They have a new general manager, a star pitcher, but they're still waiting for a new manager to talk about a lot of this stuff. Is the New York Mets beat writer for Newsday, Tim Healy. And Tim, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. Well, before we get into all that, let's uh, talk about uh, what happened Sunday night. Gil Hodges finally gets into the Hall of Fame. How big was that? It was It was very nice. It was very pleasant. And, and, and you know, to be honest, as a relative young person who did not grow up a Mets fan, um, I don't have the same attachment to Gil Hodges that a lot of people do. Um, but it has been genuinely heartwarming, honestly, to hear from to hear from readers mostly who, you know, were moved to tears or were the most excited they've been in years about baseball when they heard about Gil Hodges finally getting into the Hall of Fame. Uh, it's been half a century since he died of a heart attack. And, you know, it, it's been, uh, you know, instructive. The, the past few days have been instructive on my end, uh, just hearing all the stories about Gil uh, how beloved he, he was and is. And uh, to echo a point that Gil Hodges Jr. made, um, you know, all those years, all those times when he fell short of getting into the Hall of Fame, it was a reason for his supporters to continue to the vocal appreciation, the love, the campaigning for the Hall, so that people like me, who might not otherwise have read up on a Gil, uh, can learn about him. So uh, Gil Hodges' legacy is as strong as ever, uh, especially now that he's in the Hall of Fame. Yeah, it was great for him. But uh, as a Phillies fan, I'm sure very disappointed that Dick Allen missed by one vote. And I just, it, I'm, I was outraged when I heard Sunday night. And I'd like to know who the five voters were that didn't put him on, on their ballots. I mean, I, I, I think Dick Allen's falling in that same category where Gil Hodges he seemed to be overlooked and overlooked and. Yeah, you know, Dick Allen played in a time in the '60s when he was perceived as a moody player, but he was mm. damn good. Yeah, absolutely the same category where he, he has a lot of a lot of 
supporters, especially in the market where he played Philadelphia in his case. And, uh, you know, it's going to be another five years when he, until he gets another chance, but you would think that one of these times it'll happen. Yeah, to me, that's, that's one thing that stinks even more. You have to wait five years just to, for this committee to get why, why do you have to wait so long? Why, why can't this be done every other year? Well, there are various the, – the, the way it's set up, the, the way the whole thing has it set up is there are various committees for various eras. And the era that Gil Hodges and DeGallon were a part of, the Golden Days era, as they call it, that committee votes once every five years. Um, you know, uh, unlike the early baseball era, which they qualify as before 1950, that happens once only ten every ten years. So I guess it could be worse for the once every five years guy. Yeah. But uh, uh, it's just kind of the way the system, the way they have the system set up. I, I honestly don't know why they have it set up that way. Well, let's let's go on to the Mets now. As far as uh, some of the moves they made, you know, they let Noah Syndergaard go uh, to the Angels. I mean, how? Was that a major surprise, especially for the contracts in the guard? Got one year, like what, $20 million? Yeah, one year, $21 million from the Angels. Uh, I was surprised at that. I thought that if he was going to take a one-year deal, that it would have been with the Mets. Uh, but the Mets had an awful long time to negotiate with Syndergaard, uh, try to lock him up to whether it's the one-year deal or something more creative you know, one year in an option, two or three year deal, and they just did not take advantage of that exclusive window they had. So when Syndergaard ended up with a one year offer for more money in a new city, then he, he jumped on that. So uh, I was surprised that the Angels made him that offer because it, in addition to the money on a one year deal, it's going to cost them a draft pick. Uh, so, but they they deemed Noah Syndergaard worth it. Uh, which I get because, you know, even with the innings limit, he's going to be a very good pitcher next year. I fully expect him to bounce back strongly from the Tommy John surgery. Um, but uh, the end of an era of sorts for Syndergaard and the Mets, for sure. Yeah. And then, because I think it may have had a lot to do with the fact that at the time the Mets did not have a general manager, and shortly after Syndergaard signed with the Angels, ironically, the Mets go to the Angels and fire the, their former general manager, Billy yeah. Epler, to be, be their general manager. What is, what, I mean, he didn't really have a much success with the Angels. So what did the Mets see in Billy Epler? What the Mets saw in Billy Epler was he is somebody who has done the job before and was willing to take this job. <laughs> and those were two of the requirements um, or two, two of the preferred, uh, you know, criteria. Uh, and so, so with Billy Epler, I mean, don't forget, if, you, if the question is why Billy Epler you have to start with the Mets being declined by literally dozens of other people over the past two years. So it took them a little while to get down to Billy Epler. Um, and then that they landed on him maybe says more about the other candidates than him. But don't forget that not too long ago, Billy Epler was Brian Cashman's right-hand man, helping run a highly successful organization in the Yankees. And just because he failed – at his first try being GM with the Angels doesn't mean that his status as a GM prospect was a bad, was wrong or was bad, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think it's good that he gets a second chance. Obviously, he has the money behind him now, which, um, you know, sometimes isn't the case with the Angels. 
Um, so it'll be interesting to see what happens with Billy Epler and the Mets the next few years. And of course, hopefully the next few years. His predecessors didn't last nearly that long. <laughs> yeah. Well, now obviously, you know, shortly after that, it, it was a, right, and then right before the lockout, uh, Max Scherzer is going to be with the Mets. Uh, One hundred thirty million dollars of three years for a thirty-seven-year-old pitcher. Uh, how big was that deal, man? How much of a surprise was that? Because I, I don't think people were thinking uh, Scherzer and the Mets. It was a surprise because it's the sort of thing where every year there's top free agents and you could see how they could realistically fit onto the Mets roster. And you always say, the Mets should go after this guy or the Mets should go after that guy, Bryce Harper, Mandy Machado. Um, you know, take any big name, Anthony Rendon, any of the big names from the last few years. And the Mets really should have been in on those players. This year, with them not only in on Scherzer, but signing him, that it actually happens, you know, is just so unusual for the Mets. Obviously, it's a new era with them, with Steve Cohen as owner, and obviously Billy being willing to spend uh, a significant amount of his vast fortune. Uh, so, uh, it's, for the Mets, it's, it's, it's huge. Um, it gives them a co-ace atop the rotation with Jacob DeGrom, and it gives them insurance in case Jacob DeGrom is hurt next year or opts out of his contract next offseason. So, uh, it's big for, for the Mets for a lot of reasons. Um, you know, and, and don't discount either what Max Scherzer and his presence in the clubhouse can do to change the culture. The Mets did not have a great culture in the clubhouse, it seems, last season. Um, so part of their emphasis with some of these early offseason signings has been on strengthening that aspect of the team. Does Is there a risk involved? Obviously, you know, he's, I mentioned Scherzer's age 37, but he, he seems to be still on top of his game at this point. Yes, there is definitely risk involved because he is 37. To this point, he has not shown any signs of slowing down. He had a career-best ERA last season, finished, I think, he was third in the Cy Young voting and third on my ballot. Uh, So he's still at the top of his game. That said, every pitcher eventually regresses and shows his age. Will that happen to Max Scherzer in the next two or three years? The Mets are hoping no. But if, if it happens a little bit, you know, I don't think anybody would be surprised by that. Um, it was, it was, you know, the, the record salary of $43.3 million per season um, is because of what, the, what he has done in the past and what the Mets think he can still do for them the next couple of years. You mentioned DeGrom. Uh, obviously, he was on really a great pace uh, this, this season, maybe to shatter the ERA record. But then... The, the injuries, and we still don't know what if it sh- if he should have gotten surgery or what what's his, wait, what is his status right now? Is, is uh, the Mets been sort of uh, quiet with uh, the Grom status? Yeah, he, he's a question mark right now. The way he finished last season, not pitching, having an elbow issue, Sandy Alderson characterizing it as a, a partial sprain or, or a sprain, which is a partial tear of the UCL, which is the famous Tommy John ligament. Um, let's face it, going into spring training, the Mets don't know what they're going to get from Jacob DeGrom in 2022, um, which is part of the reason why they wanted Max Scherzer. Um, so they, for, for as good as DeGrom might feel now and whatever he's doing this offseason, normal throwing program, whatever, 
they're not really going to know until he gets on a mound and starts pitching in games next year what he's going to be able to give them. So he's a big question mark, which is uh, not good for the Mets. Mets also had some uh, other big free agent signings. Uh, center fielder Starling Marte, $78 million for four years. Uh, outfielder, first baseman Mark Canha, uh, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, uh, $26.5 million for two years with a club option. And then uh, infielder Eduardo Escobar, he's 32, and he got a two-year $20 million deal. So it seems like the Mets, as you mentioned, Cohen willing to spend, and he's showing it. Yeah, absolutely. It was it was sort of quirky the way that came together on Black Friday, and then they they were all introduced together in the same Zoom conference the following Wednesday, where one that that right there, Marte Canna Escobar is one third of their 2022 starting lineup, which is sort of striking because you, the Mets haven't always had that much turnover, or they haven't often had that much turnover in a single off season. Um, but that's what they're looking at this year. What's interesting about those three is they all come with positional flexibility, which has been a big buzzword for Billy Epler early in his time as GM. Marte plays center and left. Marcana plays mostly left but can play all three outfield spots. Eduardo Escobar could get at-bats at second base and or third base. So... It's been a trend in baseball in recent years, get guys who can move around a lot, which gives you a lot of options. The Dodgers have been excellent at that with guys like Enrique Hernandez and Chris Taylor. So the Mets are trying to mimic that to a a degree. Um, So their starting position player bunch may very well be complete at this point. We'll see what happens on the other side of the lockout. Um, But they they did a lot of the heavy lifting with those three guys. Uh, who are very good at getting on base, good at putting the ball in play, which are two skills that the Mets definitely value. Are the Mets and the Mets fans happy that Javi Baez was no longer a Met? Uh, you know, I, I think it's a, I think it's a mixed reaction on Baez leaving. There are definitely those who remember and emphasize in their minds the thumbs down saga, which is fair on the part of those fans. Um, there was no coming back from that for Baez in the minds of some. Um, but then there are some who remember his five hot weeks at the plate afterward and, uh, you know, would have liked to see Baez and Lindor be the double play combo for years to come. Um, so definitely a mixed bag on Baez leaving. Um, but I think the Mets will be just fine without him. I think the Tigers overpaid a little bit. Um, but good, good for Baez for getting his money. The next uh, step for the Mets was is to find a manager. I, I, everybody's mentioning Buck Showalter, who's currently uh, an analyst at uh, Yes Network. What are the chances that Buck comes over uh, to, the, to the Mets? Well, it seems that he's got a real shot. He is one of at least five or six candidates known to be getting interviews this week. Uh, some of the others are Brad Ausmus, Don Kelly, Joe Espada. Uh, Bob Guerin reportedly today, according to SNY, is going to be getting an interview. Um, so the Mets have their list. They're sorting through it now. And Buck Showalter, of all those names, definitely has the most experience. You know, 20 seasons managing the Yankees, Diamondbacks, Rangers, and Orioles. Um, hasn't done too much winning during those during those stops. But, uh, you know, I, I'm not sure that Buck Showalter would be the best choice for the Mets in 2022, but... He would definitely be an interesting one, and I think he would keep things interesting as well. So uh, 
Sign me up for that. Well, people here in the Capital Region remember Buck Showalter when he managed the Albany County Yankees in the Eastern League in 1989. They were one of the best minor league teams in in the nation. I covered the Harrisburg Senators back then, and the uh, they took care of the, uh, the Yankees took care of the Senators in four games in the Eastern League Championship. And obviously, Buck got the Yankees to the point where they could win World Series. Obviously, let go after uh, the '95 loss to Seattle. He got Arizona to a point, uh, but then got fired, and Bob Brownlee ends up winning the World Series. I mean, Ken, yeah. is a, can Buck get over that hump and you know, finally win a World Series? He, he, probably, he probably could, but it, it's interesting, as you said, that twice his teams won the first year after he was fired. So, um, you know, what to make of that, if anything, I'm not sure. Um, but, like I said earlier, he has a, more of a track record than anybody else, and... Whether or not you like that track record and his career winning percentage of slightly more than 500, I guess it's up to each individual and ultimately up to Billy Epler, Sandy Alderson, and Steve Cohen. Yeah. Well, you mentioned they're going to be conducting interviews, uh, which leads me to this question. Can interviews be conducted during a lockout? Yes, absolutely. During the lockout, the Mets and all the other teams are not allowed to interact with or say anything about their players on the 40-man roster, but they're free to hire a manager, which is why they kind of put that on the back burner, focusing on free agency until the lockout, and now they're, you know, plowing through the interviews and figuring out what they want to, what they want to do with their managerial opening. So, yes, the lockout uh, is not only allowed to ha- I mean, the manager search is not only allowed to happen during the lockout, it is basically their primary focus um, this week and next. I recall the NFL lockout a couple of years ago. It happened in the offseason. To me, it's like yeah, no big deal because you're not missing any games. To me, it's the same thing with baseball right now. We're not missing any games. So the lockout to me is not, at least my personal opinion, is it's not really worrisome right at this point. But should it be? I mean, obviously it doesn't seem like they're going to negotiate until after, uh, after the holidays. I'm with you. Right now, I'm not worried about it interfering with spring training or or definitely not worried about it interfering with the regular season. Everybody that I've talked to in the lead-up to the lockout, the expectation was, yes, the lockout is going to happen, and yes, they will figure it out in time for there to be 162 games. So I'd say a best-case scenario probably is something like MLB and the MLBPA figuring it out in mid to late January. Um, maybe more likely than that is early to mid-February and then a, a rush to get to spring training and so that they can start the season on time. Um, but I'm with you. For, for, for all the consternation and strongly worded press releases and press conferences and apparent anger between the sides, uh, I think uh, logic will prevail and they'll, they'll be just fine. Yeah, to me, I mean, we had the strike in 94, which killed the season and uh, carried over into 95. It was a shortened season by uh, 18 games. They played a 144-game schedule. It took a while for baseball to come back. I mean, can this sport, with the way the game is being played right now, and it's really it's been a boring game with you know infield shifts and you know everybody's swinging for the fences, lots of strikeouts. It seems that the player teams don't care about these strikeouts. And we're all it's all analytics driven right now. Are we at a point if this lockout does affect the start of the spring training, start of the regular season, how much of an effect is it going to have on the sport? Uh, well, if you if you're at a, if you put yourself in a position where you're missing part of the regular 
season, then yeah, that's going to have a detrimental effect for sure. Um, anything short of that, I don't think is going to have any real impact. I'm not among those who believe that uh, baseball is dying. You know, with attendance and ratings and things like that are just fine in baseball. Obviously, there's a lot of money in it. It's an $11 billion a year industry, which really is the problem with the CBA situation now. Players want a little bit of a bigger slice of that pie for themselves. Um, so some of the rule changes, you know, you mentioned strikeouts, shifts, things like that. The games, to me, have gotten too long. So I think if they implemented some rules or enforced rules that already exist to crack down on the length of games, that would be beneficial for everybody involved. Um, but, uh, you know, that's sort of secondary during the CBA and lockout talks, um, secondary to the financial component. Yeah, how many four-hour games do we see in the postseason? That was just... Too many. Too many. <laughs> You can't really, you can't blame me. TV has to get the commercial, but there's a point where you can't blame television because managers are making these moves. I mean, even even with the you know, the, the relievers rule, where you, the relievers got to face three batters, that's uh, it's so it's still slowing the game down. Yeah, yep. It's uh, there are definitely ways to improve the on-field product. That's for sure. Well, to appreciate a few minutes talking Mets, uh, we know. Uh, have a happy holiday, and uh, obviously we'll talk in 2022 if uh, spring training starts on time. Yeah, likewise, Ken. Happy holidays to you. I say thanks, Tim. That's Tim Healy of Newsday. We'll be back to wrap up the podcast and have the latest winner in the You Pick a Football Contest in just a moment. Hi, this is Daily Gazette editor Miles Reed. I hope you and your family have a wonderful holiday season and a prosperous and healthy 2022. The pro football season is here, and it's time to play the Daily Gazette You Pick'em Football Contest. Predict the winners of the weekly games via your You Pick'em online account. The fan with the most correct points each week gets his or her name in the Daily Gazette on Thursday and wins a $100 ShopRite grocery card. The fan with the most overall points after 23 weeks wins a $1,000 travel voucher and could win a trip to Hawaii. For official rules, go to dailygazette.com slash football. The You Pick'em Football Contest is run by the Daily Gazette Advertising Department and not associated with the Daily Gazette Sports Department. Hi, this is Daily Gazette sports writer Adam Schinder. I hope you and your family have a wonderful holiday season and a prosperous and healthy 2022. Back to wrap up the podcast. The Week 13 winner in the Daily Gazette's You Pick'em Football Contest is Mark Galeo of Clifton Park. Mark wins a $100 ShopRite gift card. Congratulations, Mark. The Week 13 VIP winner is Jim DeMarco of Terry Morris Ford. I'll be announcing the weekly winner of the You Pick'em contest, and that winner's name will appear in Thursday's Daily Gazette. If you would like to play, go to dailygazette.com and click the You Pick'em logo. The NFL season is heading into the home stretch. You can see my picks and where you can watch the games. Go to dailygazette.com slash category slash sports to see my picks and the TV listings. I was 9-5 and five in week 13, and I am 116-79-1 on the season. Keep checking out dailygazette.com and the print edition for the latest updates in news and sports on the coronavirus pandemic. 
I want to thank all the doctors, nurses, and first responders who are dealing with this pandemic. We appreciate the job you're doing in this difficult time. If you have not gotten vaccinated, please do so. Do it for yourself. Do it for your family and do it for your friends. That wraps up another edition of the Parting Shots podcast. I would like to thank Lori darling Guthile and Tim Healy for coming on the show. I'll have another podcast Thursday focusing on college hockey. I'll preview Union's games at Maine, the team's last before Christmas. I'll also speak with RPI men's hockey head coach Dave Smith about the team's trip to Alaska. And I'll also speak with members of the Union women's hockey team after it finally snapped its 16-game winless streak last Saturday. If you have questions or comments about the podcast, email them to me at shot, that's S-C-H-O-T-T, at dailygazette.com. Follow me on Twitter at Slapshots. The views expressed in the Parting Shots podcast are not necessarily those of Gazette newspapers. The Parting Shots podcast is a production of Gazette newspapers. I'm Daily Gazette Associate Sports Editor Ken Schott. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you next time. From the Parting Shots podcast studio in Schenectady, New York, good day, good sports.